Hi everyone, I'd like to introduce y'all to Brown Boy Chronicles, a podcast by four Indian friends sharing their life experiences and views on the world, talking about their struggles, their come-ups, and just coming together and cracking some jokes. We hope y'all enjoy. Alright, hey guys, uh, welcome back to Brown Boy Chronicles. Uh, this week we're bringing on a friend, Mahmoud and Kether, aka Moody. Well, I met Moody through a mutual friend um, in New York City a couple weeks ago, and I was pretty inspired by his story, and like I told the boys, and we're kind of like, let's bring him on. So Moody is uh, an Egyptian immigrant, slash entrepreneur, slash all-around, just good guy from Queens. He runs a startup called Floramind uh, that focuses on mental health education for the youth. Uh, so before we get started, I just wanted to preface uh, this episode with like a slight trigger warning um, since we are talking about mental health and whatever the other sensitive topics associated with it. So uh, let's take it away. Guys, uh, meet Moody. What's up, y'all? I'm super psyched. I'm excited. And uh, I feel it feels like a really special time to be spending with you all and talking about something I think touches every single human being um, to one extent. So Moody, up. just know this is going to be bigger than TEDx. yes sir Uh, bbc let's go yo moody i've seen you do like a bunch of public speaking on like youtube and stuff like ted talks and like other speeches and stuff but is this your first podcast this is not my first but this is my first brown boy focused podcast (laughs) with the guys for the culture um i've done a few here and there in the past but i've uh Never really been big on podcasts, so I'm excited to spend some time today on it. Cool, cool, man. Um, to, do you, should we just like kind of start from like the beginning? Like, when did you come here from Egypt? Like, uh, like when did you go to middle school here, high school, and then we can kind of transition to Flora Mind from like you know the conversation and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the beginning of time. Let's backtrack. <laughs> I like to ask people sometimes, like when I'm starting to get to know them, like you were born and then what, <laughs> then what happened? <laughs> so yeah, my start uh, is in Egypt, uh, in Giza, um, not too far from the pyramids. I joke around that I was born in the pyramids with some people and some people are very gullible. They'll believe me and we'll have a joke about it. Um, yeah, bro, you're a pharaoh? You yeah. a pharaoh? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> in the blood, in the blood. Um and I spent the first kind of like 12 years of my life in the Middle East. So Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, um, probably majority in Saudi Arabia, actually seven years. And then we came to the States. My dad um, had gotten a job as a translator and that was our ticket, our, our ticket to America for the American dream. And you can imagine we're, we're that family, right? For a lot of us becoming that immigrant or you're the first gen or even, I mean, for even second gen, you kind of feel the amount of like gratitude, but also the amount of pressure you have. And so uh, landed in Long Island, not too far from Queens and later neighborhoods called Brentwood and uh, spent two years there. And Brentwood was, uh, was really tough. Brentwood was one of the kind of lowest income it. areas. It's uh, a lot of gang activity going on, a lot of influence from different, uh, different areas. And I think I realized really quickly, which I had a feel of growing up because when we would move to like different, even countries in like the Middle East, I would be kind of an outcast in a way because they'd know it's the Egyptian kid. Like even Saudi Arabia had the Egyptian accent. Jordan, I had the Egyptian, had a little bit of Saudi accent. And then coming here, it's like, but here it was magnified because I was the only Arab Muslim brown kid like in my class 
And that was very, <laughs> they made it very apparent. Uh, so I, I got a few years of just, uh, you know, I, I made, you know, very few good friends. It, it was incredibly difficult. And so a lot of, uh, you know, bullying, racism, a lot of Osama bin Laden jokes, a lot of, um, you know, stuff like that. Exactly. And, and I think that, that if, you know, I think initially you think, you laugh along initially and you're just like, ah, that's a... first you don't really understand. I didn't really understand in the beginning. And then people were like, Oh, this happened here. And I hadn't, I wasn't really like aware. I mean, I'm an 11 year old, 12 year old. I wasn't really aware of what had happened with Islam and in and, and America that much, um, especially around kind of nine 11. And so it was 2007 when I came here. So post nine 11 and yeah. And uh, I got a lot of crap for that. Um, wasn't very fun. Did those jokes really affect you? Because, like, at least for me, like, I feel like I got those jokes too in high school and stuff. Like, I, I feel like most brown kids got those kind of jokes anyways. Uh, but it's just, I don't know, e- either I was desensitized to it or I just didn't, like, I know, like, who I was or whatever. And, like, obviously I'm not a terrorist or anything. So, like, it didn't really affect me. So I was just wondering how, like, how you thought of it. Well, like, he was also you... in the... Yeah. You were in, like, the middle of it like you're in new york where like 9 11 did happen so it's probably more concentrated there like people probably heightened and you know like they probably need to lash out and there's mm-hmm. this one person that you know is kind of related to what we think happened you know like taliban and stuff like that mm-hmm. so I, I can see like from his side where like you know he's just getting bombarded left and right with like jokes and stuff and like you can brush off some in the beginning but eventually you know like words hurt so like it definitely t- tends to take a toll on you i mean i didn't get it either like ukb but i was like in middle of pennsylvania so like they didn't really like i, I was kind of in the similar boat as you so yeah how's your english at this point like when did you like learn english and all that i was learning english i mean uh, go- growing up kind of in the middle east almost everyone is learning english to some extent oh, really? um yeah, it's it's taught because English. <laughs> I mean, this is like the impact of uh, colonialism. Colonialism. I can never say the word, but racism, slavery, colonialist countries who have forced their culture and their language on the world. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of the world has to learn English to some extent, right? Because for you to compete globally. Um, I wouldn't say maybe not majority, but like a good amount, it's always like the second language or the first language. I think growing up in Egypt, it was like, yeah, the first language was Arabic, but second language was English. But I had gone to school and I had known enough English to have a conversation, but it was definitely broken. It was noticeable. (laughs) Um, I remember coming here and having to be pushed back a grade because of it, because of not passing like English exams. But I think like KV, you're bringing like a, a good point up, right? And I think it's interesting to dig deeper into people's stories to see like how does it affect certain people and how does it how does it impact certain people growing up? You know, the idea of racism, discrimination, and for others, like maybe there are things that protected them, or you know, it's their personality, or there are other factors. And it's hard for me to understand, for example, your story in a few minutes now. But I know for some people, like I would ask you. One question, for example, was your school like 
super diverse and did you have like a community or a family outside of school uh, my school really wasn't that diverse it was like mainly white people like i live in suburbia it was like maybe there was like a couple black kids here and there and like uh, i guess our asian population was a little big too like probably 10 15 percent uh compared to like other suburbs but other than that it was like mainly white people and i think for most of us it was like that like for Deej, harvey lucky and me Mm-hmm. And then your family, like you had extended family here, or was it just immediate family? Like, did you have a big family? Most of my family did live with me, like when I was younger. Uh, my grandparents, my dad's brother, like my uncle, uh, my cousins lived with me. But then, like, they eventually moved to Canada. Yeah, most most of my family is, and like my mom's side is like entirely in America. My dad's side's entirely in India. Mm-hmm. But um, I mean, like growing up, like I think uh, the four of us, we all had like you know, our own cultural communities that we spent like a decent amount of time with outside of like school. So, I mean, like every, every week my, my dad would take me to the temple, like, and just like surround me with other Brown kids. Right, right. We all went to white schools basically. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I don't know. Like, let, me, let me ask you guys, do you guys ever play into the stereotype? Like I, I did this until like college and I, I definitely fucked me up after, but I would make all those jokes and shit and like put myself like, you know, like Brown shame me and I, just like, <laughs> laugh it off so that other people didn't have the power to do it i feel like uh, i mean first of all like for me it didn't really come up that much it was just like i don't know maybe i was oblivious to it but i felt like i where i grew up it didn't really happen that much maybe i was just fortunate like the people that i was around like they were considerate or some shit like that maybe they did say shit behind my back but it never really came to me face to face like when i was like in middle school but even when it did, I think I think it happened like in tenth grade. Like this kid was just like making jokes about you know Indian smelling and stuff like that. I would never like go along with it. I feel like uh, that should just piss me off even more. Like I I don't know. I'm not a confrontation person either, so I would just like kind of walk away from the situation. But it, I would never like kind of go along with it for the sake of just like being part of the joke. I feel like a little bit. I'm a little bit more self worth than that. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. When I say it didn't happen to me, doesn't mean it didn't affect me. Like we would have to maneuver or avoid the certain stereotypes growing up. There was a story Harvey said a couple podcasts ago about bringing food to the cafeteria and like trying to avoid how people perceived it. Yeah, I'll just throw it out and not eat. Like my parents would send home, like send me to school with like, you know what I mean? Like Indian food in my lunchbox. Mm-hmm. I would rather just like starve myself than like <laughs> <laughs> have to open that up in front of everybody and like yep. eating that for you Moody, what was it like specifically i'm just trying to wonder because i feel like we've all experienced like similar uh like stereotypes and racism but was there like one thing that in specific or was it like a slow build-up yeah that's a great question um so for me right i think it's those small gradual things over time that build up and it's also i think um that experience is part of a wider narrative and a wider struggle that I think I'll kind of zoom out a bit later, but I think essentially with, with my identity and the idea of like, Hey, you're not, you know, who you are right now. You're not, you're not going to be accepted. You're not going to make friends. You're not going to have that kind of social connection for who you are. So you have to change who you are. And a lot of immigrants, you know, go through this process in psychology, we call it acculturation where you go from, you go somewhere new and you have to, you have to actually manage like two cultures in a way. And it's, it's extremely difficult. You have to manage your own family, your own culture, the values you're growing up, you're being taught the food the type of food that you're eating at home, et cetera, the expectations you have from family and then the expectations, et cetera, same thing for the new place that you're in the, the expectations and, and values and whatnot. So for me, it was like, 
okay, I'm not accepted for this. So I need to form a new identity. And I think it's a, it's a great process for a lot of immigrants to be able to do it in a good way and not lose, you know, what they are. But I think for most of them, it doesn't actually, that's, it's not, they're not very successful. And that's why generation to generation, you'll see a lot of immigrants um, also complain that they're losing their language, that they're losing their culture. They feel like their children are like not, you know, who they want them to be in a way. So anyway, for me, it was feeling uh, a deep sense of shame about who I was and feeling like I was blamed for something that I didn't do. And so even when I would try to laugh it off and, and brush it off, I think over time it was just like, and that really hurt because it wasn't just the words that were impacting me. It was the after effect. And what that after effect looked like is that you're not building deep, meaningful relationships with people. And it's just a lot harder to do to find those people who will actually accept you for who you are and will you'll be able to go to for support. You'll just be able to enjoy some time with, and that's a, that's a huge, like, you know, protective factor for mental health issues in the future is just having social connection, having good relationships. And so I think over time, I just wanted to be less and less of what my parents wanted me to be, who I was really like my identity being Egyptian, being Muslim. And I just started to form like this new identity that would try to please other people and please kind of that community of being someone who I'm really not, you know, you have other Muslim people at like your school and stuff. Cause New York, I mean, is known to be like pretty diverse, right? Not on Long Island. And I think when I came to the next place I landed in was here in the city um, on a little, another Island. That's a thing. <laughs> uh, I'm an Island boy. That's why uh, on Roosevelt <laughs> Island. And uh, are, are y'all familiar with Roosevelt Island? You've been? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where Gumball is, right? No, so that's on. I think that's on Governor's oh, Island or Randall's Island. Randall's Island. Yeah, I've been to Roosevelt Island. I've been to like the uh, Panorama Room. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh yes, yes, highly recommend. I was just there like two weeks ago. Panorama Room. So Roosevelt Island is a really interesting place because I was there ten year, ten, twelve years ago. We moved to Roosevelt Island, and Roosevelt Island is still one of those secrets in New York City. Not a lot of people know about, but around that time. It was really like almost no one knew about it. And we had, we just had like a safe little quiet community. And then we had a few things happen. One of them being Cornell had bought a piece of land that was a lot of the IVs and and schools were bidding on to build a campus on the island. And Cornell ended up winning the contract. They built, I think a few, that happened, a few other things. And just like the prices started shooting up. So we were pushed out gentrification 101 <laughs> we got pushed out to queens i love queens um but anyway so yeah even roosevelt island there was now they are a little bit more diverse because i think i got closer to the city and there, like i slowly started to make relationships and find people but at that point i was really forming a completely new identity and mm-hmm. that point like I had already hated who I was and I was still struggling with that. And I was just creating something new to try to fit in. What's your, so can we just like, I want to just like deep dives, like what's your age right now? And then like, so like you were very open about like, you went through like a pretty serious bout of depression, correct? Like you were suicidal and all that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you just like give like, what was all that like build up? When did you peak? When did you like fall over? And now how did that recovery process like come about? Like, obviously it was probably multi-factors, mm-hmm. things adding up over time. So yep. can you just like spread that out and just like, let us be known. Yeah. So well, I'm 25 now. Um, so when I had moved to Roosevelt Island, 
at that point I was realizing that I had, I was still like struggling internally. And I think when you, you notice like over time, and this is one of those things when you try to like voice something and you try to share what's happening in your mind, in your heart with family or friends, a lot of us kind of got these responses growing up. It was just like, you know, toughen up, you just get over it. It's not that serious. Um, and a, a lot of that I think was also part of the reason where even if like having those avenues to share, like even the little things, not being able to do that, they build up over time. So I think I kept resorting to new ways to find validation from people. And so just because of that, making stupid mistakes, like hanging out with the wrong people, getting involved with like stupid gang stuff, being in the streets, starting to do drugs. And I think a lot of that at the same time was like, I had the racism, discrimination stuff. Okay. That was happening, but then it became a little bit less over time as I grew up. And then there was like mounting, you know, family pressure financially. Like I started working when I was 14. I have a big family where, um, 11 altogether <laughs> and, you know, being immigrants, you know, your dad is working. Mom, of course, couldn't work. Um, she gave up her career to raise us. So starting to work at a young age, starting to have to deal with that. And then just going through these life transitions where you're always trying to figure out how to deal with it emotionally and mentally and not being able to like not being able to effectively. Um, and so there was a few events after that as well, that just like, I think built up over time. Like there was, um, I had gotten stuck in Egypt, for example, right after graduating high school. So I was like around 17 at that time. And my father had lost our passports and I basically missed my first year of college. And that was like another small thing that had happened that it wasn't small at the time. Like it was a pretty big deal for me being younger and being like, I'm missing the most important part of my life right now. And I think you have things like comparison effect, right? You're looking at everyone else. Everyone else is going to college. I'm not like, my life is shit. Like this sucks. This sucks. This is horrible. And I think that then you go on, you go on to college And then just challenges, like over time, they just keep changing and new things coming up. I think a lot of college was like feeling the amount of pressure to like continue working and supporting my family or trying to support my family in that process. Um, So constant burnout of like, you know, I I did it all in college. I did all the internships possible, all the programs, starting companies. I think that amount of pressure that just keeps building over time when you're also not knowing how to deal with it Can I I ask you a quick question? So uh, when you're describing, you know, the metamorphosis that you went through, you come in here at 12, you know, you have to want to be accepted. So you kind of tailor your personality in a way that you are accepted within the cohort you're hanging around with. So I kind of faced a similar dilemma. Like when I came here, uh, I was nine years old and then I went back to India three years after. So the year that you had to spend uh, one year in Egypt, was it like hard for you to get accepted there too? Cause like you became like quote unquote whitewashed, like, you know, you probably like kind of tailor your hmm. view, like you, you know, you wanted to be accepted. So you probably forego a little bit of like your true authenticity, but then you went back to Egypt. Did they kind of call you out? Like, Oh, you're not really one of us. Or did you ever experience that in a way? Like when you had to spend the year there or was it? Hmm. Cause when I went to India after they're like, Oh, look who's here. Like, you know, you don't like, you know, you're a different person now, blah, 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 blah. And then I felt like I didn't fit in either world. It's like I was too brown in America, in India. I was like too white to them. So like, I was just like kind of in this purgatory zone where like, I'm like, okay, like, what do I do? Like, did you face similar things like that or? Yeah. So my year, the year I ended up taking between high school and college, I 
was stuck in Egypt, but I was only stuck in Egypt, maybe like five or six months max. I didn't end up spending the year there. I ended up coming back and figuring out some stuff to like work and do stuff like that. But during my time there, I did, I did feel that, you know, it's a very strong feeling to be back home and not feel like you belong. And I think that is a very valid and real feeling that a lot of immigrants have probably the younger ones who have not gotten to fully develop in their home country or their homeland or maybe their parents' homeland. And then they come back and like you're saying, they're Americanized or they just have a new identity or they have a new way to look at the world. And people notice that people notice that immediately, like people on the street, your own family notices it, your own family, like will make comments about it. And I think it does impact you because it's all part of that wider narrative of like who you are and how you think about yourself and how you think about your identity. And Mm -hmm. I think it puts an extra level of pressure and extra level of like thinking to be like, damn, like, I don't really feel welcome here. I don't feel like the Egyptian people are amazing. They're beautiful people. And I think that's not what I'm trying to say, but like, there are those little things that make you question yourself and be like, I'm not, I'm not Egyptian enough. I'm not American enough. I'm like some weird in between and I don't really know what I am. Yeah. Or not to like derail your whole like life story, but I was just no, like, no, 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 like, fine. Yeah, like, so, cause like you and I have like similar upbringings. Like, you know, I'm an immigrant too. Like it came here in 2003, I was nine years old. So that's why I was like very excited talking mm-hmm. to you because I think mm-hmm. you and I probably share a lot of similarities, um, not to the great deal that you probably went to, but like on the surface level, I don't even want to say surface level, but like on the, you know, the stuff that immigrants do feel, I wanted to see like if you actually felt that because I didn't have that many people that were in the same situation as me growing up. Like I only knew me and then the brown kids I didn't know, they were all born here. So I felt like I didn't really have anyone to connect to. I couldn't express myself. And then I felt like, you know, I don't know who I am these people don't accept me. These people don't accept me in the moment. Like when you're like 15, 16, you're not cognizant of like these thoughts Like you, like you don't know like why you're feeling this way, like being just like kind of tugged on one side and being tugged on the other side. And then now, like, as I'm getting older and I reflect back on it, I was like, yo, that was such a difficult period in my time. I can see why like the certain habits I have, the certain way I behave now is because of that. And this might be a kind of a transition to flora mind. Is that like what your overall picture is? Like, you know, in the moment, like uh, for people that are growing up in their teens that are kind of in the similar situation we are, you kind of want to highlight like, it's okay to feel this way. Is that like, you know, like we all been through it. Maybe it's not voices enough. It's not like in, in people's face enough to like, you know, let them know like you're not alone. Is that like the vision that you kind of have with flora mind or... Uh, is it like completely different? I know I kind of cut you off with your whole life story, but like, I thought this would be a good no, no, no. point to connect Flora mind to like uh, what we're talking about. You're good. Lucky. Um, I think it's a great, why well, I really appreciate when you come in and when you're all like just sharing pieces of your story, because it makes it all that more powerful when we're connecting and just like seeing what, what's relevant, what relates, even if it's not like the same exact experience, we're all touching on like similar things that were felt in different ways. Like even feeling desensitized to like things that are happening. That's like something emotional by itself. That's worth unpacking. Um, but I guess to answer your question about flora mind, the short answer is yes, that's definitely part of it to make young people feel seen, to make them feel heard, to make them feel like they matter, their life matters. I think the first reason I had started Floral Mind was really that I didn't want young people to kill themselves. That's like the most straightforward reason 
you know, and it's really hard to even like say that when I speak in public and tell people because it's a heavy thing to lay on people, but that's the truth of the matter. I don't want young people to commit suicide, to complete suicide. And that was my buildup from kind of that point to like going through college. And I think it was some point between like my sophomore to junior year when things had just like piled up so much that it was like, it was everything. It was like the things that I was ignoring from my childhood. It was like the mounting pressure of like providing for family. It was the, the amount of stuff I was juggling at the same time. It was like the lack of uh, being able to seek help. It was, you know, even events like small, not small, but like meaningful events. If you're like in a relationship with someone and then you're going through a breakup, like I think all of these things had like reached a breaking point for me where suicidal thoughts were like nonstop. And Mm -hmm. every day I woke up, I just, I I really did not want to live every, every day is like when you wake up, you open your eyes and I'm like, I don't want to experience today. Like I, I hate this. Like I hate my life. I hate the way that like I have to be pushed to like do all this stuff. I hate that like thoughts of my childhood would like come up so often, like what I had been through, even like events that I didn't mention that were like happening because of certain things that I had been through with like the racism discrimination part. I had like gone through a few of those. And I think over time was like those thoughts became so overwhelming that I thought for myself and and what most people, you know, some of you may relate with this, that the only way to like stop the thoughts is to end my life. I was super convinced of that. And I thought this was the only way to get out of this because if, if this is what living is like, I would rather experience death. And literally like after I had convinced myself of that, that was like, how old was I? I was like 21. That was my first like suicide attempt. That was back home. And I had done it a few different ways. I'd never like to go into the details of like what I had done, but I had done it three different times. And the third time, third or fourth time, it's weird because even with like attempts, you try your brain, like tries to erase a lot of these like extremely traumatic events in your life. But I remember just after every time it was like a deep sense of like both like fear and relief that it didn't happen. And I think it's a very weird, like combination of emotion to feel at the same time. It's like, I I feel relief that I'm still alive, but at the same time, right after that, like there would be some type of like emotional breakdown and then, and then I would go on. And this was all like in the matter of like probably less than a year of like all of these happening. And the last one was the one that I was just like, that's it. Like, I know how to like end this the right way. And I wasn't doing it right the first few times. And I had a much more concrete plan to do that. And that's when like my mom had intervened that last time. And it was an incredibly uncomfortable moment. Like I was, um, this was, I was coming back from college, still living with my parents and I had gone back home and I was just, this is the most vivid I remember of like all of them because of like how emotional it was. Um, I was walking up like the stairs of my, of my house and my mom just caught me in a very like, I don't know if serendipity, probably God, where she just like caught me and she's like, okay, like I read, I read the note that you had written and she showed me the note and I was just so pissed off that she had the note (laughs) and I I couldn't believe, I think at the moment was like such an invasion of privacy. I was like, how could she ever like look through my stuff? How could she, that is so disrespectful. And 
I did not realize it till later that like that moment and then the follow up from her that like constant nagging is what I felt like it was. Um, but low key, I, I felt like someone cared about me and someone cared enough to like be, even if it made me feel really uncomfortable that she was checking in, she cared enough to do it despite that discomfort because she wanted me to, sh she wanted to show me that she really cared and that she wanted me to be alive. That's what inspired Floromine down the line was like very shortly after that, like I was having a super emotional conversation with two of my best friends and this was in, in college and we were all just crying, like grown men crying in the library. Like one of them was Bengali, Bengali immigrant. The other one was a Chinese American veteran. And we all had like super different like life experiences, different viewpoints on the world. But we all shared that struggle, that pain, that like that type of suffering where you've been through enough to like to get it even it might not be the same the same exact thing but like the idea of like i've been through a lot of shit and i had a breaking point or almost had a breaking point and i know i did not have the resources or support to be able to prevent it or to properly like deal with it so floramind i guess in a way i'm also realizing now when i'm talking about it with you all I guess I also did not want to attempt to end my life again. And I think what I said earlier about like not wanting young people to end their lives in a way, it was probably me not wanting to end my life either and wanting to start like this journey of understanding mental health and like understanding what it is, what it means and what do I have to do to like improve myself and like go through some type of healing process and then give, give that to the world. It gave me like a sense of purpose how long did that transition take? Like from that third time when your mom like caught you and then Flora mind becoming like a real, like a real thing. Like what was that timeline? I think it was just kind of the, the first conversation about Flora mind just happened literally like a f probably two or three months after the last, it's not an attempt, but like the intention to attempt the last intention to attempt the conversation was probably in 2017 of like, Hey, we should do something about this. Like that was the conversation happened. Then like, Hey, we're all passionate about this. Let's like do something and let's look up some research. And then the, the point where it became more real was when we applied to a business incubator that helps, um, you know, students build an idea from scratch. And so I, th I think that was probably when it became real is like, okay, like, what are we calling this thing? That's like, not just research and not just us having conversations, but like, this is going to be something, something bigger than that, something with a mission, something with structure to it. So Moody, quick question. Um, I mean, the way you're describing this whole story, like your mom finding the note, like to me, it just seems like divine intervention. Like, you know, like some shit, like it sounds corny, but like, there is a reason for you to be here. Like life just works in a mysterious ways. Like, uh, I know you had to take like care of your family, like financially and all these other you know, like financial burdens, I mean, not burdens, but like the situations that you were in after your mom finding out and you kind of like realizing, you know, I don't know if you felt that way. Did it feel like divine intervention? Like it was just like, you know, like you felt like, you know, before you said you felt fear and thankful that like, you know, the attempts didn't like succeed before you even get to the attempt. Like, you know, you're having this person, like, you know, your mother 
not even like as someone random, like your, you know, your kin, like caring about you. Did it give you kind of like more of a purpose outside of just like, you know, helping your family out or, you know, like give you more of a profound meaning to your life? I'm here for a purpose. And maybe that drove you to the push for fluoramide. Or did you always already have that, like, you know, the drive and like, I'm here for a reason or like, mm. do you even, even think about that kind of stuff when you were? Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. I think looking back, I, I would classify it as divine intervention. It's funny you use that like very specific term because literally like two days ago, I was just like reflecting on something very specific we can get into later about like the amount of negative emotions and thoughts and feelings that we have in a day and how sometimes we will have divine intervention come in and literally that's the word I used written down that will like help us get out of things or guide us out of it. But to get back to your point, I've, I always had some type of drive. I've always been like super optimistic. And that's the, I think the thing that people were surprised by when they hear my story, especially people that know me, I've always been that guy. That's like, like optimistic. I'm like, I, I was in high school. Like I had eventually found, and I think this is like, it's part of the story. And I guess I don't get all the time always to dig deeper into the stuff, but like, for example, in high school, there was this business program called Virtual Enterprise that I had been through. And it was basically like helping young high school people learn kind of fundamental business and run a virtual business, like a fake virtual business. And there, like a mentor stepped in and he was like one of the early interventions into my life that was like, hey, like you're doing something wrong. Like I see you coming in here every day. You look high. You look like something is wrong with you. Like, let's talk about it. And... I think, um, anyway, so I had always some type of drive for business and I was excited. I, I was doing competitions like in high school and in college, you know, like I said, you know, I was doing all these different internships. I was, you know, I'd intern at Facebook when I was a fresh uh, sophomore, I had done things in tech. I had started another company before Floramine, but it was more like a project for food vendors. So I think the drive was there. I think the purpose, like you're saying, like, I think mental health, it was clear to me when I like had kind of like made it through and started the conversation, I was like, oh shit, like, I feel like this is actually what I'm here for. Like, I think this is the reason I had been through what I've been through and I was starting to make the connections looking backwards, like all the pain and struggle that I had been through had gotten me to that point. And I think it did start mentally, I started to make better sense of my story and putting meaning behind the suffering. And this is something like a few psychologists talk, talk a lot about. Um, there's a book called, uh, what is it called by this amazing psychologist who talks about the power of meaning. It's, it's slipping my mind right now, but I think he had been through the Holocaust and he talks about how suffering, if you're able to put a meaning behind your suffering, that is like one of the most extremely powerful things. And I think that's what I was able to do then is like, I've been through certain things and this is why. And it, it wasn't like, because I was a shitty person. It wasn't because I had deserved it. It wasn't because like, uh, uh, you know, all the negative thoughts that come with like going through something hard. Um, so yeah, it did give me purpose and it gave me a stronger reason to continue. And I think, um, maybe one of the strongest reasons yeah, to keep moving forward. For a while, I couldn't really understand why people do some of the stuff that they do like when they're depressed. Uh, like one of the things was like cutting themselves and stuff. And it finally clicked to me when I read something somewhere. It was that like these people end up feeling so much on the inside that they just want to like feel it like physically. And 
that like i was like oh shit that makes sense now like and it really stuck with me i'm like damn that's like why these people do it that's a great point kv and that's when we talk about coping mechanisms how people cope with pain suffering trauma those are all different ways that people choose to cope and unfortunately like you're saying some of the worst ways that some of the really negative ways that we cope with with pain are like self-harm so self-cutting there's a lot of research behind it and like why people do self-cutting for example specifically people say a lot of different things one of them being a lot of it being around a release some type of like release from the body like you want to release and feel the emotional the pain that you're going through release in a way and it feels like because you're cutting that release like helps helps the pain in a way um yeah a lot of it is like for people to try to transfer the pain into something because if you keep it too if you keep it in all the time it will like destroy you in like ways i don't even know if there's like research around this but there's always there always has to be some type of release negative or positive and so the coping mechanisms that we choose a lot of them are negative because usually we're either not taught the positive ones or if we're taught the positive ones, they are harder to do. And so we'll rather resort to the negative ones. Um, and, and they, they might, they might feel like they help us in the moment, but of course, usually like they're really detrimental. What I think it happens is like, you know, you just kind of become numb. The only thing you feel is, I mean, obviously I've never been through this particular situation mm-hmm. uh, i was fortunate enough i feel like i found i had a coping mechanism even though i was like getting a tug of war i would just like play video games and that was just like my zen like i would just hyper focus on this thing and you know i'd spend hours just playing video games and that's where i extracted my joy from like my sisters were very older than me it kind of felt like i was the only child because i didn't have anyone to talk to the only thing that i could like you know focus everything on to was like a video game so i just channeled all my frustrations mm-hmm. and took it out on mm-hmm. motherfuckers online you know just like playing video <laughs> games and like that yep. so like i'm very fortunate to like that i had that but for people that don't really know like they have like that escape like you know video games or like working out or anything like that because you don't know if that's like what coping is at that age like you don't know that this outlet is a release for you you in the moment are just so overwhelmed with like pain suffering that you kind of get numb to everything else the only thing that you know is this pain so that's all emotional then you try to release it physically and i think that's like the connection in my mind like why people like cut themselves or it's because you're just so numb and then the only thing you do know is pain so that pain you're trying to translate it to physical rather than emotional i don't know if that's true but uh, like to your point kb when i was like thinking about it like what you said i I wonder if that's like the case for why like people like cut themselves or you know it's just like because you don't have any other coping mechanism and then like, what he's trying like what moody's just saying you need a release i wonder if that's like the case yeah Yo, Moody, so two-part question for you. Mm-hmm. Why do you think like depression and all this is so prevalent in this like youth community now and day and age in our society? And like why, in my personal belief, I don't think depression was as prominent in our older generations. Cause I mean, I feel like they were like a little bit like tough or like toughing it out or they just, you know what I mean? They just like went through many hardships as well. Some that are probably incomparable to the hardships that we go through. But it seems like our older generations, our parents never really, well, maybe they just don't admit that they went to depression um, or they just don't know what it is. 
So can you just like differentiate between like the generational gap of like depression prevalence and why it is becoming so prevalent now, or is it just like easier to become depressed now in this day and age? Mm. So personally, I believe like there's more awareness recently, like you have rappers like Logic and stuff singing about like depression and stuff and suicide. And I think like overall too, like social media and stuff is just bad for us. It just makes you kind of compare yourself to people all day. Yeah. So great question, Harvey. And I think KV touched on like two really good points, right? Um, there is a lot of research trying to understand this now. And there's a few things that people are pointing to in terms of like trying to know, like, why does it seem like right now there's like some type of insane emergency and crisis, like around youth mental health, what has changed, you know, 20 years ago to now. Um, I think, yeah, the first point is just that I think the awareness is a big piece. What young people were going through 20, 30 years ago, it, it changed in certain ways, but it also, like you said, people have always been struggling with different things. Um, I think if you look at kind of some of the data around the prevalence of, for example, suicide attempts between young people, um, it's really heartbreaking to see, but we are at an all time high when you compare it to like older generations. And I think it's hard to attribute like, what is the specific reason, um, to that, but we know one, just gaining more awareness of like, and the stigma lowering helps us have more data. So if, you know, for example, 10 years ago, the data was like, okay, well, we know one in four young people have some type of mental health disorder. That was really about one in four young people who reported it and like were clinically diagnosed by a professional, right? We now have so much more access to mental health services and we have so much more awareness and lower stigma. I, I was saying it a few years ago that I actually thought it was like four in four people might maybe not mental health disorder, but go through some type of major mental health challenge, like at least once a year and are suffering in silence. And so I think a lot of the time we might've had better coping. Me it, it really depends also on a U.S. perspective, but also like socioeconomic perspective, wealth. There are so many factors to this stuff. Um, and I'm trying to like give you, there's no short answer to it, but I'll give you like one example. So we look at a lot of the things that affect mental health, for example, to try to understand this question. And there's a good kind of like um, framework to, to understand it called the social determinants of health. And it helps us see like, what are the key factors that influence people's health in different ways? Right. And so some stuff that you'll all guess, right. So like where you grow up, your socioeconomic status, um, the type of food you have access to, and it goes on to like, I think six different points that are critical to like what you end up uh, experiencing in your health outcomes. And actually through those, the social determinants of health, we can tell like exact kind of a very uh, strong prediction of, of your health outcomes, like stuff around if you're going to have diabetes or not, when you're going to die. Um, also includes race, ethnicity, includes employment, et cetera. And so it depends on a case by case basis, but I think overall you have the increase in awareness. And so more people are asking for help. So more clinicians are diagnosing people. And so we're seeing the data come and, and we also have more capabilities to record data, which is all good stuff. So people could have been struggling in the past. We just don't have access to it. Of course, like we're struggling with different things now, 
you know, um, I think KV mentioned social media, for example. Social media is one of the most alarming and, and most kind of disturbing things that I th- a lot of psychologists and, and researchers like finding on how it impacts young people. I think, of course, in a few different ways. Uh, one of the main ways that people talk about, of course, is like, I mean, there's the bullying stuff. First, you could bully me in school and we'll be good. And now you can bully me anytime of the day. You can come at me anytime. And the tools were taking so long to be developed. So now there's more tools to block people, to like restrict people, to really like have a safer social media experience. But for a lot of young people growing up the last 10 years, it's been so exposed that like anyone can can harm you online. Anyone can reach out to you. I was just listening to a story about sexual predators and what they're able to reach young people and the impact they're able to have just by like conversations, pictures, and actually like human trafficking. So there is, there are so many things there. I think of course, like we have just young people spending a lot of time on their devices. Mm -hmm. If you think about, for example, if you compare it to 20 years ago, we were all more physically active. We were all more outside. We were all more with friends, with, within some type of community, even if we've been through certain struggles, that is a protective factor. That is something that helped us not become worse with our health, with our mental health, with our physical, spiritual health. We have a lot less of that now. Of course, COVID did not make things better and forced people to stay home, forced increased usage of screens, et cetera, in a way. And so you have, you have so many factors that are like compiling on each other and they're all overwhelming and and that's like one opinion that i have i mean i mean there's obviously i agree there's definitely multi-factors but i think one opinion i have is that like everybody's just chasing like the next high in terms especially like u.s population because they see so much they they know what like is capable they know what they could access they could be driving this next hot car they could be with like this kind of chick they could be going on this kind of vacation and like, they're just always in this constant like mindset of wanting and needing and not being present. Whereas like, you might look at like some kids in like Egypt or Africa who are not even aware of what is all out there. And they're just so in tune. They don't have everything that like we have, but they're just present and like, they are thankful. Right. And they are, they make the best of their life and they enjoy those little moments. All right, guys, thanks for listening to the Brown Boy Chronicles podcast. We are available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and YouTube. Feel free to follow us on Instagram at the Brown Boy Chronicles and our Twitter at the BBC pod. If you enjoy our content, we would appreciate it if you guys could take the time to review, like, and subscribe. If you have any other questions or business inquiries, please email us at brownboychronicles1 at gmail.com. Thank you.